I'm Eric Chemi, and this is Politely Pushy. Shamir, thanks for joining me here on the podcast. My real first question is, is it seal of money, sile of money, sill of money? I've heard a few different things. I think I've heard you say sill of money, but help me figure out the right way to do this so that everyone listening knows. I'm sure they've read the website, they've seen your stuff, but they're not sure exactly. How do I pronounce that and why? Well, so I'll say that I pronounce it uh, as Scylla, uh, but it uh, also has the meaning of, uh, I think, like force or strength in Russian and other, you know, Eastern European languages. And there it's pronounced as Scylla. Um, but uh, I've always pronounced it Scylla, and I think that's probably the official one. I'm just going to uh, impose that on everybody else. I like it. Impose it on everyone. That's that's the true co-founder spirit, right? It's my way or the highway. It Real briefly, I mean, payments is a service, and we can look on the website. That's what you're going for. That's what you're trying to say. But what does that really mean? What is payments as a service? There's so many there's so many things now that are as a service. Payments is is new, right? It's 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 newer. It's not like SaaS and some of these other ones. How do you define that? And how do you define what Scylla's what is Scylla's offering? What is the Scylla product here? Totally. Um, and so there's the, uh, you brought up SaaS, right? And and there's this broad trend across the last, I'll say, 15, 20 years uh, for software to be delivered over the internet uh, as a set of products and capabilities which you can just plug into and use rather than sort of the old model where you bought you know software uh, cds in fact back in the day and installed it on your machine and, and paid for it uh, sort of one time right um, and uh, and that's that's been a powerful trend it's been driven by cloud computing and just the growth of the internet uh, and and we're part of that as well right specifically what we do at Scylla is uh, we're a payments platform. So uh, our core product is a set of uh, APIs, application programming interfaces, which are used by our customers and their development teams to build financial applications. So our customers would plug into our API, um, they would onboard their customers, which we call end users, could be individuals, could be businesses, onboard them, verify their identity, because that's a huge part of uh, payment and banking. Verify that identity, uh, run all sorts of risk uh, and fraud, uh, anti, uh, anti-fraud controls, then create digital wallets and virtual bank accounts, link external bank accounts, pull money in, hold it, program with it, transfer it, and then pay somebody else out at the end of some complex funds flow, right? Uh, and that fundamentally, we enable all of that through our APIs and provide it as a service to our customers. So that's what payments as a service really do. And the customers are who? Are they other banks or are they other fintech startups that are either selling to banks or competing against banks? Who are your customers? It's, it's much more of the latter, right? So uh, the pla- it's an open platform. I mean, you can go to sillamoney.com and you can click on the link to the sandbox and look at the docs and start programming and, and in the sandbox in like five minutes, right? So uh, we try to be as transparent as possible. Um, and, and so we're not against banks using our APIs. We have talked to banks who, uh, as potential customers, but uh, the reality is that most of the people who are building applications and looking for speed and efficiency tend to be in the, you know, in the fintech realm or the crypto realm, right? So mostly well, you're going to be... all the big banks, right? Hey, if you want to be fast, it's not them, right? It's, it's somebody, it's a startup. It's not the big incumbents. 
That's exactly right. Uh, and it's not like the big incumbents aren't trying. Uh, they're trying to be as innovative as they can be as well. But, you know, uh, it, it's hard for them to move that much quickly given their size and their scale. Um, and and they, get a, they get into a lot of the, the not, sort of not invented here problem, right? Uh, all the big banks and even the medium-sized banks process, I don't know what, billions of dollars of trillions in some cases uh, of transactions, uh, but they do it pretty much the same way it's been done since like the 80s and 90s, right? So they have all this legacy technology. Um, and whenever they try to do something new, the instinct is to just go and use that legacy technology, which has massive scale, but is also extremely inflexible. Uh, so we, we have had situations where we have uh, talked to teams at banks and, um, and they, they want to use our APIs, but they can't really. It's like, hey, we built our POC on your API and it works, but for, for production or for things, you're going to have to go and spend 18 months working with some internal thing that isn't, you know, that doesn't really solve our problems, but that's that's what it is, right? Uh, so that kind of problem doesn't happen at uh, uh, fintech startups nearly as much because they don't have that legacy technology. Is there something to be said, and we'll get back on track here, but this made me think of it. The banks, you always hear, oh, they're running on super old code. You hear things like COBOL and Pascal. You hear stories about like the banks run on really old code, but it's so secure, right? It's been running forever and no one hacks it because it's immune to viruses or certain things because no one even knows how to do it. Like you hear those stories, right? What's your perspective on the idea that in a way there is more security because the code is, the, the code is so old? It's like the, the Roman concrete that they use to build the Colosseums. There is an element of truth to that, right? It's uh, it's called security uh, through obscurity. Uh, I, I, I it's it's almost like a, a joke, but it really happened to me. Uh, this was like five years ago, four years ago. Um, I took an Uber in San Francisco, and going over the uh, the Bay Bridge, I started talking to the Uber driver, who was in his I guess early seventies, and uh, he was a computer programmer who had spent his whole career programming and then retired and then didn't know what to do and was bored. So he started driving uh, for Uber. Uh, and then he he had a sideline where he would still go in as a consultant to the banks that he used to work for um, and get paid like really good money to work on 40 year old code. <laughs> and I was like, why are you driving for Uber? And he's like, I just get bored. And I'm like, okay, fine, I see your point. You just need something to do, it's not for the money. Um, but that's, that's exactly right. The kind of, I mean, I learned how to program with COBOL back in the, uh, back in the 90s, but there aren't just, aren't that many people who know how to do it. So. There is an element of security there. It's all of that code and uh, and, and those platforms are highly buggy and, uh, and, and and they don't meet any modern security standards, but it doesn't really matter that much because they're typically not on the internet. They're older than the internet. So even getting access to them to try and hack them is very hard. And if you did, most Hackers out there don't even know where to start with <laughs> uh, with trying to hack uh, COBOL, right? It's all undocumented. If it it, it has it, it it has tons of holes, but you just don't know where to find them, and those skills have died as well. The problem with that is all of that is also true 
when you want to do anything innovative with it and you're like, hey, we have this 40-year-old core processing system and we want to build a new mobile app to, to do money movement or, or whatever. And you're like, well, the mobile app is easy enough to build for a good development team. But when you try and connect it into that core, you're like, how? <laughs> right? It doesn't have any interfaces that we know of and it's not documented. And, 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 and we need to make three changes, but nobody alive knows how to do that. <laughs> So it's it's you get into this thing where um, I remember I worked at BBVA for a while and uh, we once had to spend I don't know how much it was it was I think it was like a hundred k and it took about six months start to finish to expand one particular field uh, which was like I think it was six or eight digits and we needed to expand that field to twelve digits because we needed to store some new numbers in it that had gotten larger. Oh, forget about <laughs> it. Yeah, that, that's like, you might as well just get another job. That's never going to happen properly. Right? It's going to just, just destroy everything. It, it was just crazy. I'm like, I could go into any modern system and get this done in like an afternoon, right? And it's like, it's not running on a SQL database and it's not, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, it was, it was crazy. What, so what is your background? Because you mentioned, let's say you were at BBVA. Is this your first startup? Were you a fintech guy originally working at banks, doing tech at banks? How did you get to this point? How did you get, why did you decide, hey, we need to make this company to do payments as a service? Oh, that's a, so that's a story. So uh, let's go on a journey here. Uh, uh, I, I used to be a software engineer uh, 20 years ago, came to the US and, uh, and then went to business school, became a consultant. And then in 2009, uh, friend of mine from business school uh, sent me an email saying, let's start a retail bank. Uh, And that's how Josh and I founded my first uh, fintech startup, which was a neobank called Simple, Uh, pretty much the first neobank anywhere, actually. And the word neobank didn't exist when we started working on it. And there wasn't any infrastructure. There were no uh, you know, payments as a service, banking as it was none of these app as a service platforms available. So we had to kind of build everything ourselves, and we had to figure out the partnership model, um, FBO accounts, uh, how to do KYC that a bank would be fa- happy with, and all of these things. And it took us three years from beginning to work on the idea to actually launching Simple. Um, And then Simple was acquired by BBVA in 2014. That's how I ended up coming to BBVA. When I was at BBVA, I heard about this idea of building uh, a platform. And my immediate reaction was like, yes, please do this. The world needs API platforms in banking. And if anything like that had existed, Josh and I wouldn't have spent three years launching Simple, right? Um, but 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 last you said the world needs this, but why did you think? But I'm the person who will provide it to the world because there's a very big difference in those questions. Yes, and I initially I I wasn't like I'm the person who's going to provide it to the world. I was like BBVA, you should provide it to the world because you guys are forward thinking. Uh, you actually have better technology than most banks in at least in the U.S. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, it, it, it seemed to make sense that they wanted to do it. So I kind of encouraged them to do it and became an advisor, uh, but realized that they just didn't know how to do it. And they didn't have like that. Uh, they had the top level vision, but they didn't have any kind of like really thought out strategy of how to build and, uh, and ship and scale a platform. So I kind of started advising them on that. And it was slippery soap, right? Like I advised them more and more. And then they were like, hey, we're going to spin up an internal ventures team. And would you be interested in joining it? And 
Six months later, I had left Simple, moved to BBVA, and I was running uh, API platforms for them globally. <laughs> uh, did that for a couple of years, and we built and launched two API platforms, one in Europe and one in the US, uh, and even signed up some customers. But I realized that like the big bank pace of change and uh, the kind of the, 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 the things that I could do within the, the bank just it did, just didn't work for me, right? Like I was like, uh, I just got frustrated uh, and ended up leaving in 2017 and then founded Scylla in 2018 um, with the goal of making it easy for builders and innovators to build and ship financial applications and to program with money. Such a fascinating story. It's like you didn't predict to get there. I think that's what's interesting, right? You couldn't have said, if you look back 10, 15, 20 years ago, there's no way you would have thought, I'm going to end up in this position. I'm going to end up doing this. You couldn't have planned this out on your resume. I, it's, it's even worse than that. I, I, I feel like if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I, and, and I would have explicitly said that I, I will do anything except that. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a story back that, behind that as well. Uh, I, weirdly enough, I come from a long line of bankers. Uh, my parents were bankers. Uh, my grandfather was a banker. Uh, half my family on my mom's side is a banker. So I kind of grew up, uh, you know, running around uh, bank vaults in the 80s and 90s and uh, and, and learning to count cash because it was all paper-based in India at that time, right? With computerization was just happening in this like 80, the late 80s and 90s. Um, and, and so when I went to college, <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to study computer science and physics. Uh, and, and then I'm going to go become a, a you know, a, a software engineer. Uh, and look at me now. It's, it's an interesting story, right? Like it's the family experience, what you grew up with, what you know, the, maybe it's genetics. It's probably more environmental, but it is funny to see how that ends up there. Right? to think yep, I'm a banker, like everybody else, right? Just, it ends up, all of a sudden, but banking's changing, right? So it's so different now than the 80s and 90s. In the last 10 years, there's been so much development. Give me an example of like what your customers are doing that's so modern. Like you, what are you even surprised by? Like when you provide your platform and then a fintech, presumably another startup or something maybe mid-stage, they, they're really able to get some traction. They're using your product. What are they doing to then help? the end consumer? What, what's innovative to you that even you were surprised to see? I can't believe my customers are using our platform to do these things. Right. And there's, there's many of them, right? Like um, there's folks doing like uh, B2B payments in, in so many different uh, industries uh, and uh, a lot of like uh, PFM apps, uh, a lot of uh, some crypto apps as well. Uh, one which I uh, which I love is always kind of you know uh, you, you, everybody has their kind of favorite customers right uh, is this company called Ava which does uh, credit improvement for low to moderate income Americans um, and uh, it's a couple of founders who came out of Credit Karma uh, uh, great guys who really understood how uh, credit reporting works and how you can uh, build a basically a PFM app where customers can sign up, get a credit card um, and uh, put some of their payments, their recurring payments on that credit card. And, and behind the scenes, Ava will work to help you understand what's wrong with your credit, but also 
potentially improve your credit score by 50 to 100 points, right? Which uh, is, is which is huge for a lot of people. Um, and uh, they came to us uh, two years ago and uh, and signed up and they use us as kind of the, the hub of their system, right? They have a bunch of other uh, partners who do things like, you know, uh, virtual card issuance. And, uh, and what we do for them is that we, they, they use the platform to, power their ledger, their payment processing, their KYC and KYB, so their end user onboarding, and and uh, and they rely heavily on ACH, and that's a big part of their uh, business, and and that's one of the areas that we specialize in. So um, it's worked really well for them, and I'm very proud to see them scaling and helping more and more customers. Right, uh, the the improving a credit score for somebody who is kind of in that. 550 to 650 range can be transformative and in, in, you know the in that ability to get a student loan ability to get a home loan or just improve your life or get a even rental applications now are so dependent on your credit score right it's it's so true that there's a lot of things that are using credit scores which leads into a whole other conversation we may not have to have it here but are these credit scores even appropriate for these things? They weren't designed for these things. It was never meant for an apartment, right? It was never meant for all these other issues, but it is what it's sort of like social security numbers were meant for social security, not for like when we talk about KYC and, and identity. Not as a primary uh, national identifier, which the U.S. doesn't have one. Right. But in the absence of one, the social security number has become that. Right. But it wasn't the designed was to never do it. Did was never designed to do it. And sadly, it was never built with the security in place uh, that you would for a system that was designed to do that, right? Which means that now on the dark web, pretty much everybody's social security number and details is available. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> at you least laugh. You, laugh. I mean, you laugh and it's like, yeah, this is a huge problem. And you laugh because it's, what are you going to do? I'm curious, what do you do? How do you bank yourself? Like, I, I, I used to live in Manhattan, I never used a check. Then I moved out to the suburbs and you're dealing with all these contractors. They only want checks and checks have your account number right there, your routing right number. It's a piece of paper, your handwriting. And I write more checks now in the burbs than I did in the city. And people want your social security number. Every time you go to the doctor's office, like, why do you need this? Right. There's so many things. How do you personally try to manage your own risk from a financial and identity point of view? Because you know a lot more, you know too much. Yeah, and I think there isn't any like foolproof way, right? So uh, I, 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 and especially I have like really complicated uh, finances uh, just personally because uh, my my wife is uh, is from Spain, so she has you know uh, a bunch of like her family in Spain. I have all my family in India. We live in the U.S. So uh, just <laughs> you know the uh, just all the different accounts we have, and then I'm. I've been in fintech now for whatever, 12, 14 years, right? So whenever I see a new service or something that's cool, I'll just sign up for it, right? So I probably have like a hundred bucks in like, I don't know, six different neobank accounts. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, oh, you're all over. You're getting all kinds of data points. You're getting all kinds of market intel that way. Yeah, yeah. And I I, I don't do it as much as I used to uh, anymore, but, uh, but for a while there, I would sign up for everything, right? It just got too unmanageable. Um, uh, but uh, kind I wonder of what the, that does to your credit score. It's like this guy's not, got too many great. bank accounts. <laughs> it's not great. Uh, it's not great at all. And and I have uh, I have run into issues with that in the past, uh, where it's been like you know, uh, my credit score was down not because of 
any actual issues with it, but just because I tried to sign up for like 12 different uh, services in a period of like three months, right? That's a red flag. At least the algorithms think that's a red flag. They do. They think you're applying for tons of credit. uh, And that's a pattern for people who are about to default is that they go and apply for a lot of credit and borrow a lot of money so they can pay off other people. So they see that, they assume it's that, and then you get hit. Um, so the, uh, the things that I try to do is, I mean, I try to do the same, right? Whenever I, uh, people request my SSN, I try to like push back on that and be like, why do you really need it? But in many cases you can't avoid it. Right. So, um, I, you know, I check, I monitor everything and that's why I'm like, you know, I look at my transactions. I look at my credit cards. I, even though I have a lot of different services, there's only one or two that I really use actively right. and keep my core finances and those I monitor heavily. And then I'm like, yeah, you look, if you hack one of my neobank accounts and you get the hundred bucks in there, too bad. <laughs> it's not something that, that you know, that'll, that'll you know, bankrupt me, right? Um, and then uh, I also am very careful about uh, my PII, right? So uh, I cut off the labels from all my envelopes and shred those. Uh, the old school dumpster diving way of getting information uh, is not gone yet. Uh, and, and it's not the primary type of fraud that you see online nowadays, but it's also not like it's it, it doesn't happen anymore. So I'm like, you kind of have to stay frosty on several different levels and keep track of everything. I mean, I would say that everybody in this country should be keeping an eye on their credit score at least once a month, right? And anytime you see something uh, like funky happening there that's something to go understand it's like hey why is this set of new accounts that opened up in my name or or what happened right the other part of it is just to stay frosty i get um like so much spam i get so many text messages uh every employee at silla it's almost like a uh, an initiation in the first uh, month they get a text message from shamir oh, asking them to like wire money person. somewhere Completely. It's all fake, yeah. right? I never text message employees. I use Slack. And and, uh, <laughs> and, and so there is so much fraud out there uh, that you kind of just have to be skeptical constantly of everything, uh, especially stuff like text messages from numbers you don't know and, and random emails uh, asking you for information or even asking you to click a link. Right. What, and I'm glad you brought this up because what is your own platform doing to help monitor fraud, reduce fraud. So you mentioned it from the personal point of view, but now you're, you reflect a normal consumer. So your customers, your business customers, your FinTech customers, what are they doing? How are they using your platform to try to reduce fraud, you know, in aggregate? So the, we have a set of um, anti-fraud tools that are built into the platform and and available for customers to use. Uh, And it's very much, uh, you know, customer's choice, right? I mean, there are still, customers and applications out there, especially in the B2B space where they, uh, you, they, you know, they'll, they'll see one case of fraud every three or four years, right? It's almost zero. Uh, but anytime you're in like high volume, especially in like consumer online, you're going to be hit by fraud. It used to be you'll get hit by fraud within six months of launching. Now I'm like, it's probably within six hours of launching. <laughs> Uh, there's just so that's pretty much- good marketing though. If all of a sudden, hey, you launch and now the hackers know you're in business. So many companies are like, no one even knows we're out there. We launched and we don't have enough PR, but hey, well, the hackers found out you're there. 
Uh, but the thing is that only people who will find you is the hackers, all right? True. So I, I, True. It's, I've the wrong, seen, it's the worst customer. It's the worst customer. And I've seen so many cases of people who are like, hey, we launched. And then for a few weeks, there was like little activity and we were cranking along. And then we just hit the mother load. We got all of these customers within like a day or two. Oh, and, they're and now all we're going to take bad guys. And, and I, I, whenever I hear that, I start like, oh, <laughs> are I you see. sure? <laughs> uh, if you don't know why this happened and where these customers, I mean, if you went and did something on product hunt or ran a big campaign or whatever, right. that's fine. That's expected. But if this was just random, it's almost certainly fraud. You're very quickly going to find out that none of those are real people. Uh, and the only question is like, how much money have you already lost and how quickly can you stop it? Right. Um, and so there isn't any one size fits all approach to fraud. It's very much dependent on the use case, the application, the customer base. And every customer of ours has to kind of figure it out for themselves. But we provide a lot of tools for, to help them with that. Right. Um, everything from like transaction controls. Um, we have uh, products like uh, Instant ACH where we make ACH payments, which typically take like three to five days to settle. Right. We make it instant. Um, and we run those customers through a set of like uh, fraud, anti-fraud controls, uh, the obviously KYC, um, but also uh, device ID, uh, matching the data we get from the bank against the data that they gave us and, uh, and all the other sources, uh, doing an SMS call out to their phone and getting that data and uh, matching that as well, and then running it through our uh, risk scoring system, right? And then saying, hey, this customer scored high enough. They're almost certainly a good person or a good real human being and a good customer. We can, uh, you know, we can make their payment instant and guarantee it. This other one didn't score that high. That doesn't mean that they're a bad person. Uh, it just might mean that they switched their phone in the last week. <laughs> uh, right. Any new phone right. number is going to look like a problem. That's going to hurt your score versus someone, hey, they've had the same phone number for 20 years. Exactly. It could be just that they switch their phone. People do it all the time. Right. At the same time, well, that's one of the common uh, ways of like, you know, hacking somebody is to hijack their phone. It's called SIM jacking is one of the common ways in which it's done. Uh, so you, you kind of, you probably want to take these customers and then run them through some other process, right? Like process that payment, but hold it for three to five to seven days, depending on the risk tolerance and the business and everything else. Maybe request additional documents, like a photo of a license or a, or a passport or something. It's a bunch of different additional tools you can deploy. Uh, but these are kind of your good customers that are pretty confident are good. And here's the ones that are more problematic, right? And, uh, and, and that customers can use those tools to, and then build their own on top, there is no, as I said, no silver bullet, but there's a good set of basics that you should start with pretty much from day one. It's, you can't really even wait for like six months nowadays because you might, you know, you might be out of business in three with the kind of fraud that you see nowadays. It's like, it, it's crazy uh, the amount of automated fraud that happens on the internet. It's just, it's just spiked since the pandemic. Right. Right. It's been, it's been real. It's been real bad since then. But you, you said a couple of things, like depending on your risk tolerance, right? You said three, five or seven days. Are you making that decision or is that your customers toggling of when they use Scylla, they can decide how much risk tolerance they themselves want as a FinTech company? Who's making that call? 
So we make uh, some of those when we uh, process the payment and uh, and then when we indemnify customers, right? Uh, but most of the time, it's customers who are doing that, and uh, and we are providing the tools for them to be able to do that and and say, hey, the funds may be available in the wallet, uh, but there is a risk with ACAs that you could see a return for up to sixty days later. Right now, you can't wait sixty days, uh, but to get to zero risk. But the, the risk slopes off very quickly. And, you know, by seven days, you are at like 99.9% certainty. Um, and so do you, are you comfortable with 98% certainty? 99, right. 99.5 or 99.9? And that's the three to uh, seven days. Or if, you're, if you really need 100, then you might wait 10, 15 days. Right, right, right. And that depends on the business and what they're doing with those funds and what the kind of the process is, right? From a KYC point of view, what are you doing that's different than, let's say, your competitors? Because obviously, there's a bare minimum, a bare standard, right? KYC, you know, anti-fraud, you know, these kinds of techniques and risk scoring systems. Everybody's got their version of it. But what makes you stand out when you're reaching out to prospects and say, you should work with us as opposed to something different? Right. Uh, so we um, kind of the... Uh, the, the, the thing that really differentiates us is our expertise in ACH, right? So the like there's, there's a lot of uh, things that happen over the ACH network which introduce additional risks, but if you use them smartly, you can manage that uh, you can manage that risk better, right? So uh, like I'll give you an example. the the the, the return timings uh, for some of the standardized returns, like an insufficient funds return, uh, is there's a limit. Like it has to, the bank on the other side has to send it by uh, two business days, basically. But in reality, most banks do it faster because you know they they look at the account and they're like, there isn't enough funds here. They just process a return. Uh, and so sometimes you see a return within one day. Sometimes you see a return within two days. Sometimes you see a return within three days. You can look at this by routing number and you can know pretty well uh, what the return timing is uh, is going to be. And, uh, and you can tune your funds availability based on that, right? Um, so it's not a, it, it doesn't change the things you do upfront, but it does change your overall risk profile and might allow you to make funds available faster when you're processing with certain banks because you know that uh, the return window has has already passed and the ba- that bank will always send you a return quicker. Um, so the, the the end result that people are looking for, I mean, what every customer wants is instant risk-free money, <laughs> right? Uh, it doesn't and, want and, that, right? Exactly, yeah. uh, but the, uh, the the kind of there is no magic bullet to get there. Uh, kind of, there's the, the only way to really improve the whole system is to kind of build, you know, whole new payment systems, right? And that's happening. RTP and Fed now uh, are coming, and and people are beginning to use them. Uh, but we're still probably five, ten years away. For now, the game in town is the uh, is is ACH, right? Um, and what we do really is to combine state-of-the-art KYC and anti-fraud controls with our expertise on ACH to help you tune that, you know, um, conversion versus, uh, you know, versus uh, losses, right? Like if you if you say, hey, listen, I want to convert 100% of customers, I'm like, yes, you can. Just be aware that it's possible that, you know, 20, 30, 50% of them may be fraudsters. <laughs> and, you're, and you're like, hey, how can we add in a little bit of friction that is smartly reduces our, you know, fraud losses by ninety nine percent, 
but our good customers by one percent, <laughs> uh, and and that's where we that's where we specialize. How will this Fed now rollout affect ACH and your business model, your customers' business model? This is a big shift here. It is, but not nearly as big uh, as some people might expect, or at least not as quickly as some people might expect, right? So um, RTP, which is the real-time payments network, which was launched by the Clearinghouse, which is a private consortium, uh, has been around now for three or four years. Uh, and it's growing It's growing rapidly. I think it's in the, I haven't seen the numbers for 2022, but it was in the 50 to 100 billion a year in, uh, in, in payments volume range, right? Um, and, and growing something like, 50% year on year. Um, and that sounds like a lot, and it is. Uh, but ACH at the other end of the scale is processing something like 73 trillion a year, right? Um, so like, and Fed now hasn't even rolled out yet. It's going to roll out, I think Q3 is the, is the latest date that I heard. Uh, so even if you took Fed now and RTP and assume that they grow at the same rate that they're growing at right now with RTP, like 50% year on year, uh, and they grow like that for the foreseeable future, and there's no slowdown in growth, as typically happens as you get bigger. Uh, and if you assume that ACH doesn't grow at all, it will take something like 14 years for FedNow and RTP to overtake ACH, just because ACH is so, 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 so gigantic, right? Um, and I think that's that's the the, the realistic change that's going to happen is that over the next two to five years, a lot more use cases, and it's going to be quite use case specific, will start switching to FedNow and RTP because it just makes sense. Uh, but then a lot of use cases will stay on ACH because they, they, it, it doesn't work for them to use FedNow and RTP. Um, and uh, eventually ACH, which is still growing 8-10% a year, <laughs> will slow down and uh, FedNow and RTP will overtake it. That'll be in the 2030s. That's a long. That's a long time from now. So, old payment systems just don't die, man. Like, it's like your uh, old code, right? The the Uber drivers' code from 40 years ago. Like, it'll that'll still be floating around. It will, and it's kind of like payment systems have such massive, like, uh, network effects. Like, right. I mean, like any payment system that had like substantial. Uh, adoption across geographies in the entire history of mankind is still being used today, right? Whether it's coins, whether it's cash, whether it's checks, uh, gold. Pe pe they used to use gold for payments a lot before World War One. Salt. Uh, I heard salary came from the word salt, right? You're worth your salt. That was how they yep. paid the Roman soldiers, right? Exactly. The salarium was a uh, a salary. It was a payment in of salt, um, and we don't the, do that. that they don't do that anymore. And in fact, that changed even during the time of the Roman Empire. They switched to using, uh, you know, denarius and, and coins pretty quickly. Uh, the salarium was in the early Republic days. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, 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 the famous example of like uh, the Pacific uh, uh, Island where they used like giant stones for payment, they still do that now for very ceremonial use cases. They don't use it for day-to-day -day currency, but yes, uh, you can go to the island of Yap, and and you know if you get uh, if you get married there, somebody might roll out a giant stone for your wedding. That's like the equivalent of our hundred thousand dollar bill, something like that. <laughs> something like that, yes. 
I, I don't even know what I would do with that. Yeah, it's like um, that's here you go. Here's your giant rock. It's worth a lot more than all. Would you have one big rock or a lot of small rocks? You would. You might not even get a full rock. You might just get a you know a slice of the rock that was allocated to you, uh, and everybody in the community understood that that rock and your father-in-law's uh, front yard. Half of it belonged to you now. That's so amazing. But I, I like what you're saying. Like every payment system that had a big network, we still use today. Yeah. So I have to th- have to think about that one. That gives me a lot to ponder. It's sort of like we still use the radio. Right, we use yeah. FM radio, AM radio, even though we have all these other ways of communicating. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is: is there a company, a type of company out there where you would say maybe you shouldn't use payments as a service? Maybe you should go ahead and build all of these things yourself and stay on top of all of these trends and do your own, you know, payments and do your own banking understanding and do your own everything and KYC and all this stuff. Is there a customer out there that exists in this modern world where it's like the need is so is so niche that they shouldn't sign up with you? I think I think it's at the it's at the uh, it's at the massive end of the the, the scale spectrum, right? Like, uh, should J.P. Morgan Chase like switch its entire processing to Scylla? uh next year or and, and i and, and i just say that as a joke because i right. i don't even understand how they, they they would do that they literally process trillions and i would say probably not <laughs> but that uh that, where we shine is when you're building new applications and doing like you've it. got zero customers let's build this now and then we can get people on it or even if you have an existing customer base, but you want to transition them over to something new, right? Um, if you already have massive scale uh, and you already have direct access to the uh, to the backend payments networks and all the licenses, uh, there may still be specialized cases where it would make sense for you to uh, for you to use Scylla, but that's probably not the uh, that's that's really not where we play. What is your biggest challenge right now then, in terms of getting? companies to sign up like is it to, is it the awareness that we're out here or is it the difficulty of okay if we switch over is it actually you know vc funding is down a little bit the last year the economy is a little bit shrunk maybe there's fewer startups so there's fewer people who have an opportunity to do this like what is the current challenge from your point of view it's actually funny enough it's all of those three okay. right so i'd say awareness continues to be the single biggest thing it's like probably 99 percent of our you know, potential customer base has never heard of us yet. Um, and like that's as soon as they do, is it one of those like, oh my gosh, now that I know that they're here, I'll just go ahead and sign up. Uh, no, I think these decisions are really more like, they're more like business decisions. So they tend to be, you know, uh, made after like careful consideration. But it's just uh, people are like, hey, now that we know you guys exist, that's like, okay, how could, how could I do this? Uh, now I know that there is an option. Uh, but I still have a ton of other decisions to make of like, hey, does your APIs work? When am I actually going to start working on this project and blah, 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 blah. So it's it's not an instantaneous decision. It's usually a decision made over a period of time. And that's that's fine. It, these are big decisions and customers who build on top of us, we will be one of their core partners for the foreseeable future. Um, so we appreciate that. Um, what we have seen is that uh, just in the last like six, 12 months, we've actually gotten more inbound interest and more customers who are like talking to us and the kind of the pipeline 
uh, the sales and marketing pipeline is, has gotten bigger, uh, but it has also slowed down with a lot, a lot of people taking a lot more time to think through these uh, decisions and 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 you know place their bets a lot more carefully, and and also especially for the bigger customers, um, they're just pushing off projects, right? And they're like, hey. I know I need to do this and it is a priority for 2023, but I'm pushing it to second half of 23, not, you know, not starting Jan 1, right? Um, and I think it's just emblematic of well, the, you know, the entire industry. VC funding, of course, has has shrunk and everybody is like tightening their belt and there's tons of layoffs. You can see all of that in the, in the press. Uh, I don't know if you're in a recession yet, uh, but, you know, it feels like there's definitely a fintech recession happening. Yeah, that's for sure. Regardless of the macro, the overall country, there's definitely a fintech one. So what are your thoughts on this year? 2023 has just started. What do you think is going to be different this year compared to, like you were saying, what was happening the last six to 12 months, either from an economic point of view, a, you know, a, a tech point of view, or a customer point of view? How do you see the next few months here? So I think the, uh, you know, the... Uh... The, the reports of the death of the economy have been greatly exaggerated. Right? Uh, we may be heading into a recession, uh, definitely into some sort of a slowdown. Uh, but but the U.S. and and the world is 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 still in many ways recovering from the pandemic, and uh, and there is still a lot of growth to happen, especially in fintech. If you look at global financial services, uh, it's something like a twenty trillion revenue industry out of a global gdp of like 100 trillion or so um and and out of that 20 trillion everybody in fintech and crypto combined from like you know paypal through to scylla all of us together are maybe one and a half percent i don't think it's even two percent yet uh, and that's a lot more paypal right? uh, than, than scylla uh, but the this decade, I think, is going to be where we go from like 1% to 10% uh, market share. So it's not like the big banks and, and, and the traditional incumbents are going to go out of business. Um, that there, is a, there isn't going to be like a, you know, like a blockbuster movement in this industry. It's just too large and too complex and, and too heavily regulated to change at that pace, right? Um, but it is going to grow. FinTech and crypto and, and all of us are going to grow like 10x through this decade. And the, 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 we're still very much at the early stage of that. But just like in the dot-com boom, it's possible for the investment market to get ahead of right. <laughs> even the greatest trend, over-invest, have a correction, and then see 10 years later that all of those predictions came through. It just took three, four years longer than the crazy dreams of like 99 or 21. What's interesting from your business model, it's I think of it like the gold rush. It was the people searching for gold and the people that were selling them the axes and shovels. shovels. You're selling the, the shovels. And as long as you're selling shovels to enough different companies, one of them is going to take over the world, but you will have been there back, you know, behind the scenes. So you want to just see the overall fintech community grow. But you know what I'm saying? Like you're, you're more diversified in that industry than picking a single uh, champion there. Completely, completely. In some ways, we, we don't have the same investment like you know like model of a vc where it's like uh one investment in 10 makes you 10x or more and that's right. where you win because all our customers pay us right the smallest ones and the biggest ones right but the ones that really hit it big and grow like crazy uh those are the ones who 
tend to become our biggest customers and and drive a lot more right so it's it's like if you look at like a typical saas business the difference between their smallest and their largest customer might be 2x 3x 5x <laughs> right. uh in in this business it's like 10x maybe 100x right exactly right? Shamir, thank you so much for the time. This is fascinating. I have so much to think about here. I, I have a long drive coming up tonight, and I have a lot to ponder just about how the world works, how how modern finance is changing so rapidly, even though, you're right, those percentages, there are such big numbers that each 1% move of market share is a is a huge shift. Thank, thank you so much for the time and walking us through the Silamani story and the broader ecosystem that you're part of. Thank you. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you to my guest and thanks for listening. Subscribe to get the latest episodes each week and we'll see you next time.